If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. This is the word of the Lord. As Greg said, uh, we are... um, we are going to continue in our series called Unlimited, where the big idea is exploring ways God is not like us. And uh, God is not like us in a lot of ways, but one of the ways is that, he, that we are limited, but He is not. And that could be a point of, uh, that could be a freeing thing or it could be a frustrating thing for you, depending on how you look at it. It can be freeing if you just let God be God. Like you, you embrace your limitations and you, you allow God to be as big as He wants to be. And that could be a very, very freeing thing, but it could be frustrating because most of us, it's not just that we'd want to be like God, but sometimes we want to be God. We want to be him. And there's a sense to where we are to be like him. I mean, after all, page one of our Bible says that we are created in his image. We are to reflect something of who God is. And and to be Christian is to be Christ-like. I mean, that's the big idea. We wanna be Christ-like. We wanna be God-like. And so there is a sense to where uh, we are to be like him. And there are are attributes that we are to share of his and there are attributes though that we don't share of his. And the theologians over the years have put these in two different categories. Uh, The first category is the communicable attributes of God. you know, if you know what a communicable disease is, it's, it's a disease that you can catch. Uh, these are, so the communicable attributes of God are the ones that you can catch, are the ones that you share. So his righteousness, his holiness, uh, his love, um, his wisdom, these are all attributes that we, that we can receive from him. And then there are the incommunicable attributes of uh, God, which are harder to understand and usually start with the omni. And that is like, um, he's omnipotent. He's all powerful. He's, all, he's, he's omniscient. He is all knowing. There's nothing uh, inside of him that should be out of him. There's nothing out of him that should be in him. He is completely sovereign and free. And if the truth be told, that both back in the garden and today, we really don't care to have his communicable attributes what we really want are his incommunicable attributes. We wanna be all-knowing. We wanna be self-existent. We wanna be independent and sovereign. And that's why we bristle sometimes when we read the Bible. It's like something we don't understand. We're like, well, well this, I don't understand this, so it can't be true. It's like, well, hold on a second. God is, we are limited. God is unlimited. So it could be a frustrating thing if you try to hold on to you being God, but when you let go of that and let God be God, let him be unlimited. Let him be the unlimited one. You can experience some great, great freedom. And today is going to be awesome because we are going to talk about the unlimited presence of God. One aspect of the presence of God is what theologians call omnipresent. He is all present. He is everywhere all the time and all the time he is everywhere. It's an amazing thing. This is how God puts it in Jeremiah 23 through the prophet. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not far away? Am I not here, but am I also there? 
Can a man hide himself in secret places so that he cannot see him? No, declares the Lord. Do I not feel heaven and earth, declares the Lord. And this is what David is both rejoicing in and lamenting when he writes this in Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where else shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. But if I make my bed and shield down in the depths of the earth, you are there. God's presence is everywhere, but it's not that God's presence is just everywhere. He is fully present everywhere. I mean, I have a difficult time being present anywhere. Like, you know, I just, I'm here, Brian. I'm over here. I'm over here. But he's present, fully present everywhere. It's amazing. It's called the imminence of God. And whether or not you, you know, that word stays in your vocabulary, I hope that the meaning does because it can change your life. It changed David's life. And, And that's what we read about in Psalm 27, that he has a strategy for life. He has a strategic model for life that he lays out in Psalm 27. And what's fascinating to me, though, about this is the context for which David tells us. The context of what David tells us is that he, is exper- he has a hit out on his life. He, 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 every day he faces credible threats of assassination, not by some low-level street thug. I mean, the legal authority in the land, uh, someone with a massive army and seemingly unlimited resources, wants him dead and is seeking him out. He faces this every day. Now, I don't want to make any assumptions, but I'm, I'm guessing that you're not there. right? I mean, this is the 11A service, and so like, it could be true, but like, this may not be true for you. But he does this, and this is... And, and, What's amazing about this is that he developed a strategy in the midst of that kind of stress that caused him to rise above both mentally and emotionally this constant threat of death. And this is what he says in verse three. He says, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Do you have a strategy of life like that? And this is what's cool about this, about this psalm, is that if this strategy worked for David in that context, it's gonna work for you and I. And and there's something, there's an area where you're struggling. There's a problem you want solved. There's justice that you're looking for. There's something that's unfair that you want to see change. There's there's a limitation, there's something. So what's so awesome about this is that it worked for him, so it's gonna work for us. And the problem that you face, whatever the problem is, here's the good news, it doesn't, You don't have to lose an ounce of joy, an ounce of peace, an ounce of hope. It can all be yours. But most of us live without a strategy. But David has one. Here's his strategy. Let's talk about his strategy. His strategy begins with this. He starts with saying that life does not just contain battles. It is a battlefield. Uh, Life does not just contain battles. It is a battlefield. What is a battlefield? A battlefield is, is where you could never let your guard down. It's a place where you're always in conflict. A battlefield is the very opposite of a home. A home is a place where, of safety and acceptance. The battlefield is a place of danger uh, in, in crisis and conflict, and you can never let your guard down. David, David doesn't just say that, hey, you know, life has battles every once in a while. He says life is a battlefield. There's no place where you can find refuge from the battlefield. Places that you think will be safe, places that you think will uh, give you refuge, uh, they come up empty. Everything is a battlefield and people and situations are flanking to your right and to your left. Verse two, he says this, there are evildoers that assail me and eat up my flesh. In the battlefield, David's saying what you already know and that is everyone is out to get you. 
If you're here this morning and you're kind of paranoid, you're probably just being realistic. People are trying to get you. They will step over you to climb up the ladder. They will malign you. They will misrepresent you. They will hurt you. You will get sick. You will lose a job. And what he's saying is there is no safe place. Let me tell you how deep it goes. Check out verse 10. He says, for my mother and my father have forsaken me. There is no safe place. Everything is a battlefield. Do you have a strategy for the battlefield, for life? We don't have a battlefield. Most of us don't, excuse me, we don't, most of us don't have a strategy, but we do have a response. And our response is usually that we go out of our way to find safe places. We find ways to get refuge. We find ways where we can relax, where we can let our hair down if we have it. And places that we can be home, places that we can find respite. And so like in our teens, you know, that's, that's through like being, you know, we, hey, if, oh, man, if I could just get into that group of friends, if I could just be in the popular crowd, that, and then, I'll, then I'll find this refuge from the battle that I feel. If I, could, if I could just be known by that, if I can just get into this club, if I can just do this. And then we get in our 20s and it shifts to other things. You know, we start thinking about an education or a job. If I could just have that, if I could go to that school, if I can have that education, if I can have that career, then I'll find refuge from the battle that I'm experiencing. Or maybe it's in marriage. If I can marry that person or someone who would love me forever for who I am, that will give me refuge. Or maybe it's like a a political thing for you. You take that up. And then when you get into your 30s and 40s, it becomes about your physical home. Like your physical home is your physical place of refuge or it's the vacation you take or it's your kids. If you're in your 30s or 40s and someone asks you how you're doing, you are doing no better or worse than your kids are doing. That's how you're doing. Because we get into like our kids are, can become our refuge. We are desperate to find a place to relax, a place to find refuge from the the battlefield that is life and but there is no place even our mother and father will forsake us and even if you have a great mother and father I mean a great mother and a great father they're going to die they're going to forsake you they're going to leave you same with your job same with your spouse life doesn't just contain battles it is a battlefield so what do we do well I think it's worth mentioning that the bible is very realistic The Bible is very realistic about you and I, which should be refreshing. Businesses will uh, tell you that your troubles will all be over if you buy my product. You will have refuge if you buy my product. Politicians say, you will have refuge if you vote for me. You will have refuge. You're the spouse who proposes to you. You will have refuge if you marry me. Our hobbies will say that about that will be and so the Bible is very realistic. Everyone's looking for a pill and a person, an achievement, a behavior, but it's all a mirage. The delusion we possess in human ability is at an all-time high, and we should know better. We should know better because 3,100 years ago, David discovered that all we need to have a strategy for living. We all need a strategy for living that includes our mother and father forsaking us. His strategy is robust even though an army encamps all around him, even though he faces the threat of assassination every day, his heart does not fear. Now, when you figure that all out, it's called a midlife crisis. Um, Now, some of you had that in your 20s even, maybe. Some of you are in your 60s and you haven't had it yet. You still spend your life thinking, my next home, 
my next job, my next vacation, my next relationship, that'll be it. It's what Isaiah uh, speaks against when he says, why do you buy bread that does not satisfy? Why do you keep, you have money and you keep buying things that don't satisfy? We all want a place where we can finally be ourselves, but you cannot find it in this world. It's all a battlefield. So what do you do? Well, there's three, there's four options. The first one is you take the bloodthirsty reproach. I mean, you're type A, you know, oh, life's a battlefield? Great, I'm gonna win. And so you go out and you do it, bring it on. You know, businessman, businesswoman, and, and that is exhausting and it's isolating and nobody likes you. And so it's, and it doesn't gonna work in the end. That's my tendency, so I can say things like that. Oh yeah, I'll take a challenge. You say that, you know, you want six feet? I'll go, not, you know, we, we oh, life doesn't work. Or a cynicism, we surrender, we give in. We destroy expectations, there is no hope. We don't trust anyone. Become very cynical or defeated, overwhelmed. You can't even look at the news. I know people who can't even look at the news because they, they feel so overwhelmed. But then there's David's way. And what you see here, he's not, he's not the type A guy. He's not like, hey, I killed Goliath. I can take care of Saul. I can handle it. He doesn't say that. He's not a cynic. He doesn't lose hope. He, he's full of hope. He's very buoyant. He's not defeated. He says, this is life, and this is it. So he says, this is life. Life is meant to be lived in the presence of God. Everything I've said is all just to say that. Life is meant to be lived in the presence of God before the face of God. Verse four says, he tells us the reason that he's defeated his fears. He says, I'm living in joy. I'm living in victory. I'm not pushing for my rights. I'm not, I'm not asserting myself for what I deserve. I'm not a cynic. I'm not defeated. But here's the, I, I've sought one thing and I've got it. And this is what it is. Verse four, one thing that I ask that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David says, God, is the home that I've been trying to build all my life. God's beauty is the beauty I've been looking for in every piece of art and in music, in every face, in every romance. God's face is the face I've been looking for in every relationship. He's the one I'm after. And I found it in his presence. That's what life is about. And I found it. If you have this, you have the only home possible. And if you have this, you have the only safe place possible. I'm going to the house of the Lord, he says, to gaze on his beauty because it's in his dwelling place. It's the only, it's in his shelter that I hide, in the shelter of his tabernacle, the only hiding place that is a true, true hiding place. All the other homes and hiding places to get away from the battles are absolutely futile. There's only one home and it's the presence of God. But it's not just the presence of God generally. This is important. It's not just the presence of God generally. It's the face of God specifically. Check out what he says in verse eight. You have said, this is God, God has said, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, I do seek. That Hebrew word there, panim, the face of God. He's seeking the face of God. You know, God's presence is everywhere and we can experience God in lots of different ways. And I hear that sometimes. People say, you know, I, you know, you know I, the way I experience God is in out in nature. You know, I see the Grand Canyon, I experience God. Of course you do, because he's everywhere. He's every, you know, you, sometimes you see it when someone walks in the room, people say, oh, I feel like he, he fills up the room or she fills up the room. His presence can be felt. God's pretty, God's unlimited. His presence is going to be felt everywhere. But that's not what he's talking about. God is spirit. He's everywhere. He's omnipresent, but God is also a person. He has eminence. 
And it's like this, every time you sit down with your smartphone, you have an experience of the brilliance of the creator of the smartphone. But you don't know the, you don't know the creator. You've never met him. You don't know him. Because the face is the relational gate of the person. All of you right now, at least most of you anyway, are looking at my face. And the reason why is because it communicates better. I mean, if you guys were like looking there and if I was like preaching, okay, turn your Bibles to Psalm 27. We're gonna, no, not there, Psalm 27. No, if, they wouldn't go very, like if you were to talk to the back of my leg, it wouldn't be a very good conversation, but we, we talk to each other's face and the closer our faces get, there's a heightening of the relationship. The face is the relational gate of the person. So when the Bible talks about the face of God, what the Bible's saying is, is that God is not some impersonal force. He's a person. And that's the way it started. When you read about him in the, in the garden, it says that he walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And even God doesn't want to be out in this heat. I mean, he's like walking in the cool of the day. And and so, but and it all went pear-shaped. It, the, you know, like sin entered the, the human equation. And now the face of God became a terrifying thing. And, and Cain picked this up in, in, um, in Genesis 4 after he killed Abel. He says, behold, you have driven me today away from your face. I shall now be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me, Cain knew that the only safe place was in the face of God. Otherwise, if you ban me from your face, I'll be a wanderer and a fugitive. Moses knew the same thing. That's why in Exodus 33, he says, show me your glory. And he was saying, God, I want to see your face. But God responds this way. You cannot see my face for a man shall not see my face and live. You know why? Because the face is relational gate of the person. And if you've ever offended anyone, which I'm going to go ahead and say that you probably have, it's hard for you to look them in the face. Uh, parents, when you're addressing a child, if you catch them in the act, they won't look at you. You look at me right now. You look at me. Get, turn, turn your face toward me. They won't. They feel the guilt and they look away. So you grab them by the face. It's possible, although I hope it's not true. There's some people in this room, there may be some person in this room that you have offended. And so you, when you've come in, you, you already know where they're at. And, and you're sitting away from them. And what's going to happen after the service is you're going to go over here and you're going to talk strategically to someone else and you're going to wait for them to go because you don't want to see their face. And that's what happens when there is an offense. When there is an offense, it's hard to look each other in the face. That's why in the 90s we used to say, talk to the hand. <laughs> Remember the elongated phrase, talk to the hand because? Face isn't listening. Face isn't listening. My face wants nothing with your face. I don't want, there's an offense. There's an offense. And we're not gonna have a relationship. That's over something stupid. Like they, you know, took your comb or something. I don't know. But we've offended against the God of the creator. And God's not some impersonal force, but he's a relational being. And when we sin, and we don't just break the rules, we break heart. And God says, you want to be your own bosses. You want to be your own kings. You want to be your own masters. You want to stand in opposition of who I am. Our faces cannot meet. And this tension plays itself out throughout the Old Testament. 
of, of, of people, of, of God trying to communicate with his people because God was not content. He's not content with us, there being separation. And he's trying to connect. He's trying to, and, but there's, this, there's still this offense. And so there's this elaborate system in the Old Testament pointing to something more glorious that we now know of, the sacrificial system of animals being sacrificed and atonement being made for the sin of the people. And in Zechariah, we get one of the most helpful pictures of this and and really understanding what David's getting at in Psalm 27 and what he's going through. Zechariah is one of the minor prophets in the Bible. If you flip through your Bible, you probably won't see it. It's small. It's minor. It's a minor prophet. And uh, he has this vision of this high priest standing before God. A high priest was someone who represented the people before God. And the high priest, there was no one was allowed to live in the temple except the high priest for one week. And he would live there one, uh, the week leading up to the day, uh, the day of atonement, also known as Yom Kippur. And when he would go in there and he would represent um, the people, he would go into um, the, into the inner sanctum, into what's known as the Holy of Holies, to where the Shekinah glory of God lived, the face of God lived. And he would prepare this week. He would read scripture all week. Uh, he would go through all kinds of ritual bathing to stay pure and clean. And on the night before, he would stay up with all his friends would gather around him. They'd stay up all night and they'd read scripture to him. Uh, and on, the, on that day, he'd bathe like 10 times and uh, he wore these magnificent spotless clothes and he would take a basin of blood from an animal and he would bring it in to atone for the sins of the people. And the big idea that everyone wrestled with and why this was all necessary is how can we stand before the face of God when we've offended him? But in this vision, Zechariah shows a high priest not bathed, Uh, not wearing pure, magnificent clothing, but wearing filthy garments smothered in excrement. And Zechariah is absolutely astonished because all this effort that that this high priest went through to make himself worthy before God was all for naught. In fact, he was the worst kind of filthy filthy clothes, covered in excrement. And what he realizes, what Zechariah realizes is something I hope that we all realize is that we're all trying helplessly and futilely to find our way home. We are all trying to find respite from the battle. We are all uh, trying to work to find uh, a place of home. We're throwing ourselves in a career. We're throwing ourselves in education. We're throwing ourselves in a political fight, in a hobby, in a diet, in something. And the frantic efforts of the high priest are analogous to our frantic efforts to make ourselves acceptable to the only home that exists in the presence of God. But we nev- there's never enough. Our frantic efforts are never enough. There's ne- there's, they're, they're, we, we never get there. It's all a mirage, but there's hope because in this vision, Zechariah, excuse me, God tells Zechariah, I will send my righteous branch. He will take away the sins of the people in one single day and I will put clean garments on him and through him and by him, you will stand in the presence of the Lord. Now on this side of the vision, we know that this righteous branch is Jesus and we know that he went before the sins Uh, He went before the Father to atone for our sins, but he didn't take a basin of blood from an animal. He took his own blood. And when the night before, he didn't have friends all around him. His friends left him within an hour. 
and he was rejected. He stood trial all by himself. He, stood, he went to the cross all by himself and he didn't go dressed in beautiful robes, but his clothes were stripped from him. He was naked and he was flogged within an inch of his life and his flesh floating in the air like a ribbon. And the only thing he bathed in that day was the spit of the people. And on the moment he died, the veil in the temple, the veil that separated everyone from the presence of God, in that moment that he died, that veil was torn from top to bottom. And this is what God was saying. Do you want to know what the cross is about? Do you want to know what the gospel is about? Do you want to know what Christianity is about? My son died so that you can see me face to face. And it's the only place that you're going to find refuge so that you can know me personally, so that the burial will be gone, so that you can have hope, that you can have peace, so that you can have joy. Instead of me being your boss, I can be your father. I mean, what do we, how, do we, what, how do we respond to that? Well, number one, we need to receive the invitation of God. Let me take you back to verse eight. He says this, you, God has said, seek my face. He has summoned us to his presence. Isn't that great? He has sent an invitation through the whole world. Come seek me. If you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. Come seek me. So he says, my heart says to you, Lord, I will seek you. So the first thing, you have to seek his face. You must seek him. You feel let down by fill in the blank. You feel let down. I know, if we go around the room, we did test it. Maybe you feel let down by a relationship. Maybe you feel let down by a lack of a relationship, a career Maybe you feel let down by the government. Maybe something's creeping in that's causing you to feel cynical. It's stealing your joy. It's stealing your peace. And you're fighting for something. Maybe it's your kids. Will you receive the summons to only place to find refuge? Whatever because sometimes, you see, it's kind of like an itch. Like you can scratch it, kind of. But the, I, I tried to ask, uh, I asked Dr. Greg this week for a biological reason for an itch. And I, can, uh, and I wasn't, no offense, but I wasn't satisfied with his answer. <laughs> I, there's a psychological and philosophical reason I've come up with. An itch is a l- lust of the skin that requires direct contact from a fingernail. That's my definition. It's this instantaneous, and, and, and the only way to really get an itch is you gotta, you gotta, you gotta get the bare skin. Have you, you know, like in the wintertime, you know, like I, I remember last year I was skiing and I had you know, just bundles and bundles of clothes and you got an itch on your back and you can't scratch through those. I mean, I'm just like, you know, rubbing up against, I'm rubbing up against stuff trying to, but it just doesn't work. I had to like rush to the bathroom, take out, you know, get, ah, oh, there we go. It's like that. We've got, we're all, we've got all these layers of, of stuff and we're trying to scratch the, but it's just not, it's not happening. It's not going away. We're frantically trying to get rid of it. And you're frantically trying to get rid of it, but you need direct contact from God. You need to seek his face. And then secondly, we need to believe in the goodness of God. This is what he said. We didn't read this, but this is in verse 12. David says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord and in the land of the living. You have to believe that God is good. You have to believe that he is who he says he is, that he is the son of God, that he did die for your sins. 
And, and, that, and that involves repenting because it means that if he is God, that means that you are not. If he is king, that you are not. If he is master, you are not. And you come to, I, you admit, you, you believe, which means that you repent, that you say, I'm a terrible leader in my life. I've offended you. I want to change and I want to follow you. So you believe. One is to seek him. He, if you seek him, he'll draw near. And the other one is to believe in the goodness of God. I came across a passage of scripture this week that really kind of helped me with this. I gave, gave better language. It's in Isaiah, it's Isaiah 45, but you have to read it in the King James. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no one else. There's no other refuge. There's no other safe place. Life feels like a battle because it is a battlefield. There is no safe place. You're trying and you're not fine. There is no one else. There is no other God. There is no one who can save you. But here, how do you be saved? You don't look to yourself. You don't look to religion. You don't look to good works. You don't look to a career. You don't look to a relationship. You don't look to anything. You look unto God. You look unto him. Are you looking to him this morning? Are you trusting him to be your high priest? Now, here's the truth. Here's, there are a couple different kinds of people here this morning. Some of you are not looking at God because of your guilt. When we feel guilty, it's hard to look people in the eye. You have not looking to God. You're looking at something else because you can't look at God in the face because you feel guilty. I just want you to know that on the cross, Jesus bore your guilt and he bore your shame. And you have to experience it no more. You, it's called that you exchange. You give him your life and he gives you his. And you have the peace and the joy that David found, that strategy he found, that even though an army encamps against him, his heart will not fear. So you're looking, you, you can't look him in the face to this morning because you're looking at your guilt. Receive forgiveness. <laughs> it says if we confess with our mouth, he will he will purify us from all unrighteousness. Our sins removed from us from the east, as far as the east is from the west, David says in another psalm. And some of us are not looking to God's face because we're looking to other things. We have hope. We have hope in a relationship. We have hope in a career. We have hope in a political party. We have hope in something other than God. We're trying to find refuge from the battlefield, and we're coming up empty. And maybe you're, new, maybe you're young enough to feel like you can do it, but there'll become a point where you realize that you can't. You haven't yet discovered what your heart is capable of. But in God, there's a true resting place. So some of us have to, are not looking to God because of the guilt we feel, and some of us are not looking to God because we're looking at other things. And I just believe God wants to meet you this morning. So why don't we stand? In a minute, we're going to um, we're going to sing a song about God's presence, and I hope that you would take the time. If you are living with guilt, like you can't look God in the face because of guilt, I hope that you would take this opportunity to confess to Him where you're at and and to seek His face, to receive the summons of the Lord, to believe in the goodness of God, and to and to and to know that you know that you are in a relationship with God.
And for others, it may be an alignment moment where you need to align your face back to him. You, you, you know that you're looking to other things. You're not looking, you're not seeking him first and foremost. It could be an alignment thing. Now, I want to ask this question before I pray. What if we all did this? What does it look like for a community of people, individually, but also corporately, seeking the face of God, the presence of God? In Psalm uh, 107, uh, God says, he talks about uh, this dry and parched land that he brings springs of water. He, he, he individually, he, he saves people whose souls are like dry land and he brings springs of water. But the other thing he says, he says, they will build a city. They will build there around the river, around the river of God, which is often analogous to the presence of God. They will build a city and, and provide refuge. And we want to be that at Jubilee Church. We want to be a people of God's presence individually, those who seek God's presence individually, but those who seek God's presence corporately. We want the presence of God to flow through us into the streets, into the neighborhoods that we live into. And that is why we gather. That's why we'll gather this week for prayer. Because God's called us to do something that's way beyond it. We're not, we're not this type A church. Oh, we can do it. We, you know, we got this. We got, we're not built on preaching. We're not built on a person. We're not built on programs. We're not built upon a strategy or an ethos. We want to be built upon Jesus, which means being a people that seek his face and seek his face through prayer. And so I would love it, man. I'd love it if you, if you made it just a massive priority, knowing now how important this is to join us this week as we seek together the face of God and the presence of God and say, God, will your presence flood my neighborhood? Would your presence flood my workplace? Would your presence flood St. Louis and through St. Louis beyond? God's called us to a work that's beyond ourselves because we, we want to attach to eternity. We're, we're seeking for that. He gives us that opportunity to do that as an individual, but he's also got, he's invited us to do that as a family, as a community. I want to pray. And then we're going to sing, and I hope that it's a a prayer as well as a song for you.